I, I'm... Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um... Well, I'll just... For my own sake, um... Yeah. So... This feels, this feels the safe. moment you decide, <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, uh, I don't know what yeah. I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, Always edit. <laughs> so this feels terribly awkward, but uh, all right. So the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, we're calling this the History of Christian. No, wait, a History of Christian Theology. Um, yes. And uh, I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it. So we'll see. Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. With me again this week will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. This week we'll be doing the second half of Clement of Alexandria's Exhortation to the Heathen. And just a reminder that Clement of Alexandria is writing in Alexandria, and he is trying to explain to people who are not Christians uh, what the Christians believe. Um, it's also important for me to remind you that very few people actually read Clement of Alexandria. I didn't read him until I began my PhD studies at St. Louis University. As a master's student in theology, I never read Clement of Alexandria. Some of the stuff that we will be discussing from Clement of Alexandria is very difficult to understand, and a lot of people just don't read him. He comes in the line... Uh, of thinkers from Alexandria, and the next one that we will look at from Alexandria is Origen. And Origen is classically one of the most difficult people to understand, much like Clement, because they draw so heavily on Greek philosophy and Greek thought. So if you've been at all confused or uncertain about the kinds of things that we are discussing, you're in very good company. I would also like to add that when we read these thinkers, we don't necessarily agree with everything that they say. This week on this episode, we will discuss a little bit of allegorical interpretation from Clement of Alexandria, and we will also talk about the way in which different thinkers in the Christian story have thought differently about different issues. We want everybody to be aware of all the different currents that come about in Christian theology, but that doesn't mean that they are all correct, and it doesn't mean that we agree with them all. So when we reference the way that a thinker thinks about a particular issue, we are not wholeheartedly endorsing it. We're just trying to get it out on the table that there were Christians who thought this way. As we proceed, I will try to do better, a better job of explaining a little bit the kinds of things that we will talk about in these podcasts, and that way I can sort of get you prepared for some of the difficulty um, in which the difficulties of the various thoughts that will come out uh, in the various thinkers. Um, before I lead you on to the next episode, I am uh, sorry. This one is a short episode. I got a little confused as to the length of our recording, so this one will be a bit shorter. I would also like to take this opportunity to remind everyone to go to facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology where we have information about our live recording event that will take place in December, December 18th at eight o'clock. And that will be at the district coffee house in downtown Boise. And we'd love to have as many people as can make it come out next week. We will have my friend Ben on. Um, and Ben Brandon will be discussing 
uh, Christian Gnosticism, which is a view that Clement of Alexandria holds, which is not to say that everybody should hold it, um, but it is what he argues for. So we'll talk about what that means next week. Here's our episode. I, I wanted to turn to chapter 11 and say, what, what is, how does he talk about the, the fallen nature? Mm-hmm. Well, he doesn't, he doesn't give the fallen nature a description that has a lot of theological heft to it, in the sense that what I mean by that is he doesn't give a, much of a theological description about what happened. Uh, in the fall, per se, or what Adam's sin meant for us individually or any of those things. To be honest, and and I just throw this out there for our readers, and Chad, maybe you can help me find this. I know I underlined it. He seems to imply that, oh, no, I found it right away. Chapter 11 on page 202, he almost seems to imply that the story of the fall, that he interprets it allegorically. Yeah. Right? So he talks about the serpent as an allegory, signifying pleasure crawling on its belly, earthly wickedness nourished to the fuel of the flames, as uh, was as a child seduced by lusts. So it's almost like he is, and I don't know for sure if this is what he means, because I've not read enough of Clement, but it's almost as if he implies that the story of Adam and Eve with the serpent is in some sense a retelling or a, 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 a archetypal story about what happens to all individuals as children being led astray from truth and knowledge and goodness. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that he would deny the real existence of Adam and Eve because it just doesn't say that. But I do think it's interesting that he does speak of it in allegorical terminology and in archetypal terminology. So, uh, you know, for our listeners, what I mean by um, allegory is it's a big metaphor, right? That it's, it's not that he he is interpreting it in a non-literal way that Adam represents something, Eve represents something, the serpent represents something. And then archetypal, meaning that Adam is a type of what happens with individuals. Now, he doesn't deny explicitly original sin or deny Adam being literal. He just is talking about it in a different way. So, you know. No, he does later, um, just further down from that passage, say something that kind of sounds specific, and then can become more archetypal or general just about everyone. He says, uh, man had been deceived by pleasure, which kind of sounds specific to the story, taking the serpent as pleasure. And then he goes, and bound fast by corruption, had his hands unloosed and was set free. And now now it kind of ends with, like, man as in man in general being set free because now it seems like he's fast-forwarding. Yes. To when we're set free by Christ, so yeah, it, I kind of, I kind of think you're, I think you're right. I think you're on somewhere, but might read on. Actually, that whole little section is amazing because he he says, "Oh, divine mystery, vanquish the serpent." He's speaking, I think, of Christ here. He enslaved the tyrant death, and most marvelous of all, man had been deceived by pleasure and mm-hmm. bound fast by corruption, and his hands, speaking of Christ, unloosed. And was set free. Oh, no, that's man. His hands were unloosed and set free. Oh, mystic wonder. The Lord was laid low, speaking of Jesus, and man rose up. And he that fell from paradise, speaking of man again, receives as the reward of obedience something greater than paradise, namely heaven itself. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, and that's definitely um, the case of, again, you have this, the Plato used to talk about ascents and we're actually, we're still, we're still in middle Platonism, um, but you had to ascend uh, out, you know, out of the cave basically. Um, and so we, we have a little bit of that. And for um, Clement, the, the paradigmatic or actually not, probably not even the paradigmatic, but the, um, the, the, the great philosopher um, for him is Plato. He sort of gets it as right as anybody. So he's on board with Justin and some of the others who are going to draw heavily um, from Plato, even though recognizing that he didn't understand Jesus um, himself. But, but before, I, I didn't want to turn too much to Plato. I did want to also say, um, so Clement is the head of the catechetical school of Alexandria. So they basically think that there was something like a Christian school in Alexandria, and you could go and learn um, about what it means to be a Christian, much like the philosophical schools in Athens. Um, you could, you know, you, where you could learn Stoicism, or you could learn, you know, from the Peripatetics or what have you. And so Clement um, is the teacher of Origen, and Origen will argue that Adam and Eve are just an archetype. Um, and and he will actually, there'll be a, he gives a sort of threefold um, t- pattern for uh, interpreting scripture. Um, and the highest is the allegory. Um, so, and a- so actually, if he's saying it's allegorical, that's not a denigrating thing for the Alexandrians. Um, it, it is actually a, um, you know, you, that, that they would, they would embrace that. Um, as the best way to understand what's going on rather than just looking at the literal. Which, disclaimer, doesn't mean that we agree with them. (laughs) (laughs) Me and Chad and Trevor have differing views on all sorts of things, Um, you know, in terms of theologically. It's it's part of, I think, what drove us to have these conversations. Uh But please, again, just a reminder – we don't necessarily look over these theologians to tell you that you ought to believe what they're teaching. We're trying to look at the discussion as it has unfolded in the history of the church, right? Um, The time is coming, just so our listeners are aware, when we're going to be only reading Catholic and Eastern Orthodox theologians. None of us are Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. (laughs) So, but at the same time, it's a, it's, I I am I have a strong conviction that Christians need to know the foundation of their faith and why things have gone the way they've gone and understand how this narrative and this conversation between the different um, uh, movements in Christianity have unfolded. Uh, I, I have strong conviction that we do need to know that and understand that because there's a tendency I think in the church to always react in such a way that if you hear of a new doctrine that you haven't heard before, you automatically just assume, well, that's bad, rather than stopping and saying, wait a minute, where does this fit in the tradition, and how can I engage in it? How can I engage with it? How can I discuss it? Because because Protestants have long had this practice of thinking, well, there was the early church, and then everything got really bad, and then it got better in my time when my when the pastor of my pastor figured everything out. That's kind of the general way that Protestantism has worked. And I really think that we are cutting ourselves short if we don't stop and look at how and why doctrine unfolded the way that it did. Um, So, yeah. Which is why you should listen to the podcast. Which is why you should listen to the podcast. And encourage others to And you should tell everybody to go 
and download this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So and and I and I didn't want to I didn't want to leave without using the Clement does actually say the Lord was laid low and man r- rose up that he fell from paradise, right? So I mean, this is this isn't lapsus, which is what Augustine will use. Um, and this is actually the Greek word, and at, at Philo of Alexandria actually talks about a fall from paradise. Um, in his interpretation of Genesis. Um, so this this idea may actually have um, resonances with Philo of Alexandria, who was a great Jewish um, Platonist um, or, or Platonic, or how, how do we say that? Uh, the other way around, like a... Um, a Platonic Jewish person? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> like, he's, he's, he's very Jewish. He's also very Platonist. Um, and he... Jewish Platonist, yeah. He's a Jewish Platonist, I think. Yeah. Um, but I, I, well, I wanted to try to get the primacy on Judaism, but whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, isn't primacy on Judaism by calling him a Jewish Platonist? Well, no, I feel like he, he is a Platonist. He's just of the Jewish sort. No, no, no. It's his version of Platonism is particularly in, in, Jewish informed by his Judaism. Yeah. yeah. Well, how about his Judaism is informed by his Platonism? Uh, probably it probably goes both ways. Yeah, probably is a reciprocal relationship. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, anyway, so yeah, so there is a um, there is a notion of of fallenness, and that we're going to begin to hear that word, um, and and what does that mean? And actually, for for um, for Philo, I think he actually falls from heaven. Hmm. Hmm. Wow! That man falls from heaven. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I have that right now. I want to look that up, but yeah. yeah. Hmm, that's odd. I, I was trying to figure out, there was one other passage. Sometimes he actually reads a little bit like, you know, you might want to, you might think that he was arguing that we have to work our way to salvation. And I mean, that some of that is there, but I was trying to find, there is a good line where he, he says, um, Oh, I know what you're talking about. I think he says, present thyself to God as an offering of first fruits that there may not be work alone, but also the grace of God. Both are requisite that the friend of Christ may be rendered worthy of the kingdom and be counted worthy of the kingdom. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, it seems to whatever degree the fathers that we've read so far, I'll be honest, most of the church fathers we've read just don't seem to be really aware of the thought that there could be a tension between faith and works as the the means of salvation, right? They They just seem to interchange them they, they even generally stand, tend to stay away from quoting scripture that speaks of faith alone, like where Paul talks about being saved by faith and not by, or by grace through faith, not by the works of the law. That's in Ephesians, you know, or, or things like they seem to kind of stay away from it, but it's almost as if they seem unaware of the debate, as if it's not even a question for them, as if they the two just blend together in a way that, makes them not stress about it. I don't know. I'm not saying that's the case. There just hasn't been a lot that seems to be um, aware of that issue. If I remember some of the early writings, I think maybe Clement um, did make assertions of salvation by faith, not by works of the law, but without really discussing it in a broader sense theologically. So It's super weird, though, because I think grace has shifted Mm -hmm. between different uh, writers like I can't remember everyone but I it seems like either grace is uh sometimes even the, you know the grace to do good things which yeah. would be like a really catholic view 
or sometimes it seemed like it was the grace to like just just to choose. Yeah, which is kind of crazy. Well, that's more Calvinist really view. Like a Calvin, Calvin kind of had that adopted that view. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. which we'll talk about. I thought, but oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah. The, well, the and grace is the prerequisite to choosing. Yeah, and I to, to Tom's point, I would say they are not motivated by a by a debate about which is the right way to salvation. That is probably motivating somewhat my question because I suspect that I still read with a Protestant lens, um, and so I'm looking for certain questions because of the way that that I was traditioned. Um, nevertheless, if I if I had to make a defense of why Clement is not. Um, engage in that kind of debate. He's he's looking at the um, the vice around him, and so what is very important to these early Christians Christians in the midst of a lot of persecution as well, um, and persecution for their moral conduct um, that they need to demonstrate that they have great conduct, um, that they are virtuous, um, yeah. because if they don't. Um, you know, then then the charges against them will be fair, uh, and then you know, and then the persecutions may increase. Um, so mm-hmm. I think there's sort of a twofold interest in sort of self-preservation, um, as well as the fact that for ancient philosophy, the goal was virtue, um, and and yeah. so it was to become the virtuous wise man, um, and so how you lived mattered. Um, and, yeah. and so it, it would be anachronistic to, to sort of say, um, you know, to have these concerns that I have to bring them and say, impress them into my service in that way. Cause I just, they were, they were thinking, no, I've got to learn how to be the perfectly virtuous man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, right. and I think I do that through Jesus Christ. And he yeah. says, but just by grace and by faith and through Jesus, uh, yeah. but you still need to be virtuous. Yeah. Hmm. Which he talks a lot about, I mean, that's a big focal point for him is the fact that the, that in spite of accusations against the church for being immoral, he said he, he essentially calls everybody to look around him and to notice the sexual licentiousness going on around them everywhere. He speaks frequently of adultery, of orgies, and of pederasty. He says, look, these guys are practicing this everywhere. It's it's so it's it, it's pandemic in our culture is what he's saying, which is very interesting because I think that's one thing we'll all we'll find as we look at Christianity existing in a non-Christian culture is that you will find this tension uh, between Christian views of sexuality and pagan views or non-Christian views. Right, that's going to be the thing is because of course pagan worship centered on prostitution, not all pagan worship, but there was a certain, um, what's the word I'm looking for, a bent in paganism, kind of a a vein in paganism, in which central to their worship was orgiastic practice, was sleeping with prostitutes and, and all of these various things. And much of the pagan philosophy was centered on uh, erotic love and the fulfillment and practice of erotic love. And so it was a very sexually charged culture, which makes sense. People are sexual and they're sexually charged. But that is is and has always been a tension uh, in when, when Christianity is a minority in the culture. So to this point, no comprehensive study has been done looking at traditions from the the West, the East, and the Far East, um, looking at their various theories of of language and naming. Um, and so I'm going to try to do maybe a comprehensive study of that. 
Thanks for listening to A History of Christian Theology. Next week we'll be back with more Clement of Alexandria, and please check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology where we have links to our blog as well as to our event that's coming up on December 19th. We would love to meet you and see you all there. Thanks again.